Wawiatanang, a Detroit Land Acknowledgement, by Antonio Cosme. Anytime we talk about place, home, and welcome, it is good to talk about land acknowledgements. A reminder that when we are hosting people, organizing an event, or offering a talk, it's important to begin with acknowledging the indigenous presence on the land where we stand. Let us work to make sure it is not a token gesture, but a meaningful practice. Quote, If we think of territorial acknowledgments as sites of potential disruption, they can be transformative acts that to some extent undo indigenous erasure. I believe this is true as long as these acknowledgments discomfort both those speaking and hearing the words. The fact of indigenous presence should force non-indigenous speakers to confront their own place on these lands, unquote. Chelsea Vowell, Metis, Beyond Territorial Acknowledgments. So for this issue, we begin by doing a territory acknowledgement for the place from which the magazine comes. We want to acknowledge the history and land and honor the indigenous people who continue to love this land here in Wawiatnong, Detroit, Michigan. This piece was recorded live at Wayne State University as part of a podcast in collaboration with Motor City Wesley. So knowing the history of the land is knowing indigenous history. On Indigenous Peoples Day, the Detroit Indigenous Peoples Alliance passed a resolution in City Council renaming Detroit Wawiatanong, a word that articulates Detroit to the water. Differences in the European language and Anishinaabe Moan language demonstrate the diverging approaches towards nature. Many Latin-based languages differentiate nouns by gender. Anishinaabe Moan differentiates by animate and inanimate. Trees, rivers, animals, rocks too are animate objects with life and spirit, while man-made objects are inanimate. This is how we got to 410 parts per million carbon in the atmosphere, a society that commodifies and destroys the sacred, worshiping the inanimate. Renaming Detroit one day of the year does not elucidate all of this history, but a vital first step is acknowledging this special place had a name before Antoine de Moth Cadillac came here a mere 318 years ago. Wawiatanong has been a central meeting place for the Great Lakes indigenous peoples, including the Anishinaabe, which include the Odawa, the Ojibwe, and the Potawatomi, the Wendat and Iroquoian agricultural peoples living in permanent settlements around Lake Erie called the Detroit area Tucha Grande, or land of many beavers. Beavers build wetlands that teem with life, creating critical habitat for fish, waterfowl, and 85% of North America's wildlife species. Wetlands purify polluted waters, keep nutrients in the ecosystem, and check the destructive powers of floods and storms. Beavers, once sacred, became a commodity to the French, who traded their furs to supply Europeans' fashion-driven demands. The French desire to control the fur trade led to their settlement of Detroit in 1701, as Cadillac, the colonial governor, attempted to fend off British settlers and monopolize the fur market. By 1760, Detroit was ceded to the British, who attempted to appease natives by restricting colonial settlement in the coveted, fecund, Midwestern soils. The American Revolutionary War was fought, in part, to secure American settlers' access to the Great Lakes in Ohio. However, the mosquito-laden wetlands that dominated southeast Michigan prevented settlement. Detroit remained a tiny trade post until the Lake Erie Canal connected New York to the city, then Detroit's population exploded from 2,000 to 2 million in 100 years. The term drain the swamp, employed by the U.S.'s contemporary climate change-denying idiot leader Donald Trump, is among the most colonial of idioms. 
Upwards of 90% of the wetlands in the coastal southeast Michigan were drained away for lumber processing, industry, and people. The wetlands' ecological benefits were lost, and the straits would never be the same. Michigan's industrial legacy began on the stumps of Michigan's great forests. From 1820 to 1920, 97% of old-growth forests were clear-cut. Settlers could buy acres of, quote-unquote, virgin timberland cheaply, building extreme wealth while destroying centuries-old forests. The clear-cut lands were developed and rains washed away soil. It takes hundreds of years to develop one inch of topsoil. The federal government created land-grant colleges like Michigan State University to give away the ravaged clear-cut land and convert it for agriculture. The total value of Michigan's lumber, the green rush, was higher than the value of California's gold rush. The forests were sacred living beings and kin become commodities. Not incidentally, alcohol treaties were signed by natives who were intentionally inebriated during the negotiations, ceding nearly all of Michigan's land at the dawn of the lumber era. In the 1870s, children were forcibly removed from their homes, placed in boarding schools where they were sexually and emotionally abused, and strategically stripped of their culture and language. The land was being raped as the native children were. At the same time, barbed wire became popularly available, creating borders and large-scale enclosures of prairies out west. Maybe if the United States knew more about this period in history, it wouldn't be supporting Jair Bolsonaro, a fascist Brazilian president who was clear-cutting the Amazon and kicking natives off that land. Or maybe the U.S. public wouldn't allow children to be separated from their parents and abused like private detention facilities in the southwestern United States. Once the pine ran out, capitalists began using trains to carry hardwoods that didn't float. Secondary companies and businesses for stagecoaches, furniture, and other value-added products flourished. The money that built lumber towns like Saginaw, Bay City, Muskegon helped jumpstart the industrialization of Michigan, leading to the gilded age of American capitalism and transitioning into economy dominated by the nascent auto industry. All of this industrial activity polluted the rivers of America, resulting in a time where the lakes and their tributaries were considered public sewers and waste disposal lagoons. Dirty rivers were considered a sign of prosperity. It's a quote from John Hartig. This was exacerbated by industrial agriculture further separating people from their food, polluting the rivers that they depend on. Not even water is sacred. It too has become a commodity. Renaming Detroit for a day is a beautiful and necessary act of language and cultural preservation. Indigenous peoples have been fighting back from annihilation with languages formed in environments that sparsely exist. While neither is gone, the damage to both has been enormous. The history of this land and its native people is available in books and online, yet it's seldom taught in schools. Not only have natives fought through genocide, they are regularly fighting U.S. historical amnesia. While many of these are the lands of the Anishinaabe, few actually know the, ne the land of this place we call Detroit, Wobiatanong. Young people are taught that their history goes back to the Greeks and Romans. We can name city-states from there 10,000 years ago. But many of us cannot name this land, which has only been Detroit for 300 years. Similarly, students don't know about the great forests and abundant wetlands that came before Detroit. The initiative to rename the city's Indigenous Peoples Day does not rewrite the textbooks or decolonize the land. It won't bring back peak white pine forests or the wetlands that clear our water and certainly won't make topsoil, but slowly, inch by inch, we can retake the public space that is our collective consciousness. Antonio Cosme, a Coahuiltecan Boricua from Southwest Detroit, Michigan, 
is an economist, artist, educator, beekeeper with Southwest Detroit, gardener with Southwest Grows, an outdoorsman, hashtag black to the land, and works at the National Wildlife Federation.